Welcome to episode two of the second half. I'm John Gilbert and I'm in conversation with Dr. Paul Sewell OBE. Part two is titled Come Together. Paul and I discuss the business owner's peer group, culture, and choosing the right employees and customers. To kick things off, we discuss how being a business owner gives you choice. Driver's choices, isn't it? You know, whether it's money that you need, it all ends up in giving you the highest state of a career and personage, if you want, is, is choices. And, and in added time, I can now choose to work with people I want to work with. You know, that's what, you know, I'm not flattering yet. That's why I'm sat here with you today. That's why some of the things, if you've read in the book, the half a lettuce investment stuff, I, I'm not going to invest. I'm going to work with people that I like and I believe in their higher purpose, etc. And not many, four, five, six of them. And uh, to go back to first principles, it's always great for me because uh, first principles are, all, are always there. It's like it's like a, a golf pro going back to a, a, a top golfer going back to the first lesson and, and reminding themselves how to stand and stuff like. And that's what I do when I talk to young entrepreneurs that I'm trying to help in business. Uh, so added time is a bit about yes, it's a bit about giving a bit back, but that's not that's not to go to heaven. That's, that's because I enjoy it, uh, it gets my juices flowing, it, it always teaches me something. And uh, I mean, if you've read the book of Mad Business, Hero, Hero Guru, he's a guy called Tom Peters that I followed from In Search of Excellence 35 years ago and right the way through. And uh, I happened to bump into him at the Birmingham Hyatt just after the turn of the millennium. We were going to see him, we're in the bar of the Hyatt and Patrick said to me, you say we're going to see Tom Peters tomorrow, Dad. I said, you know we are. I said, we don't have to wait till tomorrow if you just turn around. And he was stood next to me at the bar. And so we went down and had a coffee and a brandy and a chat. And I happened to say to him, told him about the type of business I had and uh, in the north of England. Uh, and I said, if you had to say in a sentence what I need to be looking at in the 21st century, because I think it was 2003 or something like that. And he said, oh, that's dead easy. You've got to be home for talent. And if you're going to be a home for talent, you've got to win the war for talent. Your business success will be predicated by the people you get in the building serving those customers. Those people will be blended generations you've got. Millennials, you've got Generation Zs, etc. With totally different attitudes. They won't be coming out of schools and colleges like, like the raw material of the past. They will be very discerning. They might lend you their talent for a year or two if they like your higher purpose, etc. So... He said, if anything, Paul, be prepared to go into a war for talent because the war for talent is going to be bigger than war for customers in the 21st century. And to win the war for talent, you've got to make sure you're home for talent. And so we obsessed on that. The second thing he said was, just realise these people are going to need one, one hell of a technology platform to work on because these guys are going to choose to go to work for somebody where they can fulfil what they want on the best technology platform. Be prepared to invest a lot in that. And we, and we have. Uh, we've invested a lot on the technology platform, which we now find working from home like that. Whenever he's got to work from you know, everybody can work on the same project or drawing. We've been doing that for years because we invested on the technology. And of course, the home for talent stuff is just caring for your people, yes. But I think people more and more want from a career what you've got some control over that career you and me are the same our customers can sack us mm -hmm. which is quite right and if they do they would be quite right to take that 
but I, I started working for myself because people were making decisions on my life and career that I would never even meet somewhere in London. I didn't like that feeling. Uh, so I took, I took the lead on that to say, well, if we're going to be a home for talent, these people are going to want a proper input in their career. Not just training plans, etc. They're all going to be great at something. We need to identify what that is. There are, the juices get flowing at different things. Well, let's know what they are. Give them a really fulfilling time and watch the business fly. Mm. Uh, and, that, and that's how you end up in the Sunday Times stuff that we've been privileged in the last 10 years. Mm. Uh, uh, that's, that's been, that's been a, a nice badge to have to win the war for talent because if people think you're a top employer. Uh, but then people come to think it's all, it's all upside. It's a very demanding place to work. Mm. It's a performance culture. You know, you're working with winners, you're working with talent, and you have the, the effect of, you know, you, you've got winners working with winners and they drive each other on them. It's not peer pressure, it's not nasty peer pressure, it's just the peer pressure of excellence. Oh, I think that if I find a situation where members of the team are, as you say, not in, not in any sense of an aggressive, but in a, in a positive way, pushing each other to, to find another level, and it's not me as the only official line manager in the business having to do that I think more well, onto a good thing here yeah and it's just about all, like all ships rides together and uh, sorry is it, is it tide rides is all ships something like that yeah yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. edit that and maybe well <laughs> but, but that's uh, particularly in any kind of organisation you've, you've got to be able to do that and I think that business models have uh, have changed to some extent because you have people that come in you cultivate this talent and you, you, you instil so much belief in them but that doesn't mean you own them. And it doesn't mean they've never really worked for you. You've always worked for them and to be able to able to support that. And now when you breed some kind of level of entrepreneurialism, you've got to realise that actually they might they might want to go and do their own thing. Mm. Uh, but if you've managed that relationship well, and I, I believe this is as an external looking in, I believe this is something that Soul Group have done very well, is that when somebody is in a position to do that, let's do it together or let us support you. Let us become one of your clients. Let's become your key client to begin with. Because say you've still got that person on your team. And as you say, you're buying some of their time, some of their talent, some of their expertise, but they've still got that level of, of, of freedom. So you've not lost them. It's not that they've gone off and set up in competition and therefore it's a bit of rivalry forevermore. If you can do that and you're operating within that community, it's a bit more like the business model of how you would make a movie. So you have typically self-employed people who you've got your casting directors and your actors and your cinematography and your stunt people, etc., etc., etc. They don't, they, in some cases they are, they're not typically employed by the studio who move on to the next project, depending on what the boss does. They can pick and choose from which they can do that. And I found this with Eskimo Soup. Sometimes I think it's purely an ego metric that I look at our business and think, well, we've been going for all of this time and we've got a good client base. Why aren't we a bigger company? But then I also flip it around and I go, do you know what? For such a small company, in terms of headcount, we don't have to produce a lot of stuff. What's the headcount? So with us now, there's six of us full-time. We've got two part-time, but we work increasingly with freelance specialists who will, will come in on a job-by-job basis. It's regular work. Yeah. So we treat them as part of the team, but they've still got the freedom to choose and to do their own thing. But it affects them with the regular work they get from us, make sure that the bills are paid at the end of the month. Um, but the, the, the people who don't, I don't think it would be right to fully harness them. Whereas the full-time team, it really is about investing in, in growing those people. Maybe this isn't the right thing to say, but one of the motivators I say, I want, you to be, I want the company to be less dependent on me. So the fact that it, 
I can come in one day and think everything's done, and then I can go and interfere somewhere else and explore my interest there. We're not there yet. Yeah. We're certainly not there yet. Again, I don't think it's the right thing, but it feels like a bit of an aspiration for me. Well, well, when you were speaking there, John, the first thing that came into my mind is small is beautiful. Um, 30 years ago, Tom Peters was saying all the innovation in business comes from companies with under 20 people. Mm. Uh, in fact, he said at that time, the bulk of the oil in the world was discovered by wildcatters who would then sell the rights onto the BPs, etc. of this world. The BPs would be looking at a mountain and is there oil over there? And the wildcats have gone and drilled and found it or not by the time the BPs of this world have done the risk analysis. So small is beautiful, uh, teams under 20. I really took that seriously because we now employ 500 people. But if you look, uh, they're all working in discrete teams of, of under 20. So we built an FM business. So when we got to 40 people, we split it between health and education. So you work for Sewell FM Health and they can innovate within health. And then if we, and then when Sewell Health, FM, the health side of it grew to 50 people, we split it between East Yorkshire and West Yorkshire. So you always felt you were working in a smaller company because I think people feel more personal there. It's more personable. They feel uh, more important to the career as more of a teamwork situation, and certainly people will try stuff. So I think being an organisation of your size is an absolute privilege. And even if you go off and start, uh, start something over here in the second half, there's no reason why your talent in there shouldn't keep that, that, that business going. And I think it comes a lot back to the career progression conversation we had earlier on. I think that for some people, they do feel like, well, I've got a promotion and I've managed somebody and therefore that's a mark of success for me and it's everything that my career should be. But I, I must have I've really challenged this in my own mind recently and thinking, well, in, within a small business, you talk about career progression. What we're actually talking about is personal development and, and in a small business, that's the best place to do it because you can... You can change things, you can influence that in a way that you, I mean, I've never worked in a big business, I, I feel a bit of a fraud saying that sometimes, but it must surely be more difficult because of the, the structures and the bureaucracy and the way things are. I know Absolutely. Not, not every organisation is going to be like that. As the bigger you grow, and you've got to grow, the, the, the reason, you know, the bad news on that is if you don't seek to grow, the, the talented people within there see no growth and see glass ceilings, etc., etc. Now we're at 500 people. My fear is that you bulk up, you slow down, you become corporate. There's more meetings going on around the place about governance and risk analysis than ever actually creating anything. Uh, and, and the reason behind that, and I've had people challenge me for that, we took over a, a smaller company in Huddersfield a couple of years ago, a super company. The managing director said to me he couldn't believe our systems and bureaucracy and decision-making process. And I said, yes, but I, I remember being your size and there's actually not as much to lose. And the people working with the public sector and their very, the, 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 their requirements and how they see the world pervade you as partners. So I am concerned about it. I understand why it is. And the thing is just to continue to push against it. Go governance is about decent, decent decision-making and assurance that things are as they should be. And, and that needs to be there. Uh, that, that keeps a... a an organisation healthy and surviving, but when you get around to innovating and and uh, and, and moving forward, 
you've got to allow that. You've got to actually encourage and allow those mistakes. One side of the governance wants to stop mistakes and things going wrong. And then the other side of it has got to encourage mistakes because that's where you innovate. The culture of everything is really, really important. We know that uh, culture is a derivative of the word cult and people need to join a cult in a family, in a sports team, in a business. Uh, and so if, if I was to talk about anything about what we've learned at Seoul is creating the right culture. Because if you create the right culture, so much of the stuff we could talk about falls into place. Uh, so what do I know about culture? Well, you get one, whether you want one or not. Uh, if, if you don't work on your culture, uh, you get it from bottom up and you might not get stuff you like. Uh, so does it want to be command and control from the top down? Well, no, then you just become get very passive people at the bottom and you don't want that. I think the essence of getting a decent culture is got to meet somewhere in the middle of strong leadership downwards and, and uh, people being in a home for talent and confident, people comfortable in their own skin and you get a culture, you get a culture from that. So leadership from top down, I am absolutely obsessed with a set of good key core values. I call it the, uh, the holy trinity of culture. It's, it starts off between having a set of key core values, they don't change. Having your purpose and your higher purpose, that can change. Uh, having your vision, that can change. Your key core values never do. But that's the holy trinity for me to start with a culture. Those three things of strong key core values through leadership and then people come in and buy into the values. Your strategies and your different business models, etc., come from that. And that's when you feel happy and content in a business that you share the values. So we've discussed purpose and, and having a higher purpose and how that can change. Uh, visions change. But if you get a set of key core values, John, that you are determined to hire on, reward on, fire on, and take customers or not on, I think that's the start of creating the culture and, and people where people want to come and be comfortable in the culture. We hire for cultural fit uh, above technical competence. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. The first time we got in the top 10 of the Sunday Town Best Places for work, to Work, uh, a lot of people come and see what you're doing. They do. They think, I want that badge. I've tried consultants. I've tried buying the badge. I want it. It's a good marketing tool. They come and, and try to find some sort of magic solution. They're always disappointed if there isn't one. <laughs> and I normally see those people because I learn a lot from those people. But this particular time Rachel my head of people saw this guy and he ran an airport and they'd been trying to get in the Sunday Times getting that what they considered an accolade for years and couldn't even become a one to watch so there's three stars I couldn't even could get one star and so beat and I couldn't be there so Rachel took the took the meeting and he come walking in briefcase spread himself out and, and the, the atmosphere was so passive-aggressive. Uh, Rachel said to me, Paul's got this phrase, a leadership's a solution, tell me the problem. Well, she thinks the problem's just walked into the room <laughs> because she said, right, what do you do? Yeah. What do you mean? So what do you do? People ask, so Rachel, what we do that, that, that. Yeah, we do that. Yes, we do that. And we do that as well. Mm -hmm. So we're so Rachel and say, 
have you ever let anybody go purely on the grounds of cultural fit? Not technical competence or deliberate, but cultural fit. And there was a silence, and he closed his briefcase up and went, because he realised that was the secret. So we, we, uh, we obsess on bringing people in that will match the culture. More so we obsess in bringing people up in our own culture. So entry level as early as we can get people, bring them up in your own culture. Uh, so cultural fit is something that, uh, if we have a recruitment process, and, 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 and I've got this, this phrase that the sin, is not, the sin is not recruiting the wrong person. The sin is keeping the wrong person. Mm. And we all know after a couple of months that it ain't right, there's something not right, but you don't take action, you leave it and leave it and it affects the team. Oh, a serial offender. <laughs> and yeah, because you do, you make that decision, you've moved heaven and earth to get somebody in, you've gone through all the process, and then you don't want to be wrong, John, do you? No, you, Then you it. see things that you want, want to be right, but trust your instinct in those situations. So we, we have about a five, four or five stage interview process, you know, and a lot of it will be uh, group work, uh, observe group work, problems, and uh, we used to have, I don't think we have any more, but we used to have this uh, telepole something on the website, you know, it was pretty trendy at the time, wasn't it? <laughs> and if I get a complaint on the website, it would more often than not, there wasn't many, probably a dozen over the past 10 years, but nine of them would be about trying to come to work for us. And they would say something like, I've been to my fourth meeting doing four different things. And one guy said, I, I don't want to marry you, Paul. I just want to come and work for you. <laughs> I said, but you are going to marry us. Mm-hmm. You know, and for you, as well as us, it'll be disappointing for you, it'll be disappointing and for us. We go as far as we possibly can to make sure that there's shared values we have values based in sort of interviews where we talk about what our what we do behaviours actually, John. Because my my you probably know of the book. My sister's was massively God Squad, and uh, and I'm not demeaning religion in any way, shape, or form. But m- the people my sister hung around with didn't. They were Christians. They went to church and they had the Bibles with them. But they did. They were, my, my mother, who never went to church and never read the Bible, was a true Christian. She had those. She had those values. So, a spouse values. I sort of got nervous about from a very young age. So, when we looked at this thing at school, we have behaviours. So, we have behaviours like, do you want to be a professional? Because we'd have gifted amateurs here. Our, our customers desire professionals. If you want to be a pro, you'll fit in here. Do you want to serve the customer, not, not self-serving your team because the customer pays our wages, so you've got to be ultimate customer focused. Do you, do you work in the team? Because it's a team game here, and if you're a lone warrior and you're not comfortable in teams, you're probably an AO positive type of person. We would sort of try to measure that on the psychometrics and everything because uh, if you don't do it then, it's really hurtful when you have to do it later. So what I would say, the recruitment process above anything else, getting the right people in the building is absolutely, in fact, I'm, I'm a football coach, as you know, I've talked to decent people, uh, uh, a level of football clubs, and I say, what's the three biggest things to run a successful football club? And they all say the same, recruitment, recruitment, and recruitment. And it's gotta be the same for a business. So work very hard, have your key core values, be very discerning when you're bringing people in that they match those key core values and then you've got a chance. 
this transition thing, this paper about Harvard Business School said, uh, there's certain things you can do to up your percentage, and there's certain things you can do to bring what they call the break-even point forward. Because when you, if you'd hired that person, they reckoned it's about six months before they're giving the company uh, what more than what they're taking. Because they're a sponge, aren't they? They're a sponge, they're going to need to take lots of stuff on board. Uh, now, the average is six months. If you do a good transition, you can get that to 90 days. And if you look at a good transition before you recruit, you can up that 50%. Uh, and a lot of it is on, on cultural fit. So it's uh, it's a bit woolly cultural cultural it, stuff. It, isn't it? it is woolly, but you talk about it in quantitative terms as well, don't you? You talk about if you've got a fully engaged person, you can actually measure that on the bottom line. That's right. That's mm. right. Uh, we uh, this was some work. We, one thing we do do we go where there's best practice, we go and find it. You know, uh, last year I've been in Tokyo, been in Sydney. Uh, we go to the states a hell of a lot, and you go and find. I was in the States and they did some research on engaged people because I think a lot of people still think these Sunday Times top 100 stuff is a bit fluffy and it's nice for the brand but no, no bottom line effect. The measurement that they did that you, even your decent worker uh, works about 80%. Uh, if a person's fully engaged with input into the career and feeling that, they can get towards 100% productivity-wise. In my business, that's 100 people for free. So you tell me that's not bottom-line stuff. Uh, that, was, that was quite reassuring, really, because we actually do that stuff, not, not for that. We do it because we think it's the right thing to do, because we all want to work with people we want to work with. Because at the end of the day, your second half will be determined by the people you gather around. The fun you have in your business will be determined by the type of people you have around you and the type of clients you get. You know, we even have to get to a point where we say, if we set up our business as wholesome with this talent, etc., etc., those people deserve good customers. And sometimes you have to rank customers. Well, I, there was a thing we discovered many years ago about just hiring nice people. Just hire nice people. Uh, but then the second stage of that is that nice people deserve to serve nice people, don't mm. So we have this phrase of nice people serving nice people, and I love that. I love that it lasted for a few years at the Civil Group. We are nice people serving nice people. And uh, and, and I think, uh, yeah, I think it ends up at the bottom line, John. I, I think that's so important. I think that, that fits in with, with your culture because, let's, let's use a nice word, a difficult customer can have such a negative impact on everything, not just that account and not just on that team, but... It can, it can drag everybody down. When I had business partners in the previous company, our largest customer, we, we, they were awful to us. They were, they were, they were slow in pain, but that wasn't the, the main thing. It's the way that they treated members of the team. And I just wasn't there to put up with it. I said, we, we don't need them. Yeah. And it was like, well, we do need them, John, because they're paying it. I said, we'll, we'll replace yeah. them. We'll replace them. But, or we can keep going and be miserable and have a few more quid in the bank. I said, but that's not why I'm in business. Is that why you're in business? And... I have to say that, that that was one of the, the, the key things that was not quite the straw that broke the camel's back because I was already pulling away from, from them at that it's point. It's very liberating that though, isn't it? But that when it. you made that decision, that was so liberating because we're coming to business thinking the customer's king. If we don't have customers, we're going to be in real problems unless we delight our customers and all that. But when you realise a customer only wants to win-lose, 
Stephen Covey said, win-win or no deal. Uh, and walk away from a win-lose. That's what you did, and it was absolutely the right thing to do. I can honestly say that our customers now all want win-win. If I'm not careful, it can sound a little arrogant, but we, we turn on a lot of work. And we're turning on work now during COVID-19 where you need to have that income. I don't want to be over, overly kind of blasé about it, but if, it's, if, there's no, if there's no long-term value to that relationship or there's no sh- compelling short-term reason for us to learn a new skill or that it's going to help us get to, from A to B, then, then we, just, we just won't do it at all. And it's likewise with firing clients. When, I mean, you do, it, you do it in the right way. You don't storm in and just go, Yo, mm. we, we don't deserve this and we're not putting up with it anymore. You, do, you, you manage it in a professional and courteous way because you don't want to burn bridges. You don't want to make enemies if you don't have to. Well, we'll get to the little bit now. But, John, because... but, the, but, the, but the impression, the, the lesson that, that, that I like to think that, that teaches the team is that they, they come first. And it's, I mean, it was it Branson who said about if you, if you look after your employees, they'll look after your customers. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's... It's so obvious to me. In fact, you know, actually, my 12-year-old son said it to me yesterday about a situation. He said, oh, when, if I ever have a business, Dad, I'm, I'm going to look after... I've been thinking about it. I'm going to look after the employees because they're the ones who are going to look after the customers. I don't know where that, I don't know where that came from. But, uh, but yeah, uh, it was like... Great. Well, well, it's a strong hours because we say you've got to be a great place to work. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe he picked your book up because I've got it. So <laughs> maybe, <you. laughs> yeah. No, but you've got to be a great place to work before you become a great company to deal with. Oh, there was a fabulous saying that, that from the, the Bosch guy. Uh, I, do, I do pay good wages because I've got a lot of money. I've got a lot of money because I pay good mm. wages. You know, and it's this virtuous thing, is it? Now, that's not to say there is not a performance culture involved. We've talked about this in the past. If you have that virtuous bit of your business, you have got to get, whether you call them C players, you've got to get that bottom 10% or actually pulling on the other end of the rope. Unless you deal with them very quickly, then contaminate the rest of the, the culture. So to be very discerning of anybody who's showing signs of not buying into the values. You know, we, we've got an employment uh, retention target of 90%. If it's much below 90%, uh, we're, we're thinking that we're not being an attractive enough place to work. If it's much above 90%, we're not dealing with the people who are really not sharing the values and need to be out of the building. Mm-hmm. There's another thing about that engagement, though, because being a football coach, uh, I know good teams play quick. Any team can play okay, but at a certain level of pressure and pace. The better teams play quicker, and it's exactly the same with the business. And engaged people have got the capacity to play quicker. Whereas people who are just coming in, they're probably decent average people, getting a wage, and we all need plenty of those. And as long as they're delivering, that's fine. Uh, but if they're not delivering and sharing the values, they need to be able to build it. If they're delivering and not sharing the value, you get away with it as long as they're delivering. Uh, if, if they're delivering and sharing the values, they're your A players, they're, they're your accelerators. And, and we actually map that out with our people. And our people know, they all have individual performance agreements. So we have our business plan, and each person's got a personal business plan that will sit underneath that business plan. And there's an exercise in self-awareness that, that this is me, what I'm a great at. Uh, what, what do I want to be held accountable for this year? How is that going to be measured? What consequences do I want? And we put a lot of effort into writing that down because as we found from America many years ago, 
the people who write things down tend to deliver them more. The billionaires had a, a life mission written down and the millionaires, some of them didn't. It was that type of stuff. Well, we've got, we used to call them performance agreements, personal business plans now. And they're not, they're not easy to do because uh, people don't want to commit to things in writing, do they? And that's just when you want to commit to things. So we know the business plan. How am I, what's my personal business plan going to do to fuel this business plan? You know, and it's measurable. And, and actually, it's consequential. And by the way, Mr Gilbert, I think if I knock these things off, I think I deserve a, a, a gain share bonus of that or a rising salary of that. And that makes it completely clear. Total clarity. So they don't have to smile at you at pay review time or, you know, be particularly good roundabout bonus time. It's down there in black and white. I, found, I find that a really good practice. If you, if you were to set up again put your templars down. And if that's it, not just employees, associates, supply chain or whatever. If you had to start again, which would be your A team? And if it's not the one that you've got, your job is to move it from where you are to that perfect team. Mm -hmm. A pretty simple people strategy, really. Mm -hmm. That brings us to the end of episode two. I hope you can join us for episode 3, Can't Buy Me Love, as we discuss what it is like to be an entrepreneur. Copies of Paul Sewell's book, Half for Lettuce, are available upon request. Just Google Paul Sewell, Half for Lettuce, and you'll find out details of how to obtain a copy. This has been a socially good media production by Eskimo Soup. Google Eskimo Soup or follow us on your choice of media to find out more. On Twitter, Paul is Paul E. Sewell, and I'm John Eskimo Soup. Finally, enjoyed this podcast and i sincerely hope that you have please tell someone share online rate and review on twitter or wherever you get your podcast